Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. Oftentimes we do have these really abstract ideas that we want to get across to kids, but children are exploring often in their own ways and have really interesting ideas and questions that we often don't always hear. If you're a very extroverted person and a child, say, is very introverted, it can be tempting to think, oh, why don't they have more friends or why aren't they more social at parties? But to keep the conversation open and to really discuss the fact that we can have these disagreements and continue to talk, I think it's so important. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... We want to see, well, how does a child naturally engage with nature? Is it more that they want to take kind of one-on-one hikes with you, say? Or are they happier in a big group of people all chatting? And helping to really go with what's working well with them. Maybe you can help stretch them, but emphasizing and celebrating their natural tendencies when they engage with nature, I think is really helpful rather than saying, oh, it has to be this one way. Kind of opening ourselves up and saying, oh, maybe. searching for salamanders with your children for half an hour or so. You've come across plenty of damp soil beneath blocks, but no salamanders yet. Since wild turkey numbers sharply increased in this area, salamanders have become noticeably less common. You brace yourself for what could be some uncomfortable questions. Rebecca Rowland is no stranger to children's often fascinating questions. On top of being a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a faculty member at the Harvard Medical School, she wrote the book The Art of Talking with Children. Rebecca joined Ian to discuss the what and how of rich talk, why the outdoors is such an ideal setting for having meaningful conversations with children, and how we can effectively discuss with kids weighty environmental topics. The opening chapter in your book is titled, What Rich Talk Is and Why We're Missing Out. So let's start with the what it is piece. Yes, definitely. So rich talk is in a concept I developed to think about how we have great conversations with kids. It really has three components. So I think about the ABCs of rich talk. A just means adaptive, meaning that you're really going with the flow of what the person in front of you is interested in, their moods, their temperament, and so on. B is a back and forth. Some people call it bilateral. So thinking about actually having a balance between your speaking and the child speaking as well. So not talking at kids, but really taking the time to talk with them and develop those ideas and conversations in conjunction with them. And C is for child-driven. So really this means centering conversations around what a child is interested in, engaged by, curious about or even worried about. And we know that doing that is really key to 
their motivation, but even just to making the conversations more engaging for both of you. It's so interesting. This squares almost perfectly with the inquiry-based learning model that we talk so much about in all educational circles, but very much in outdoor and environmental education and leading from the questions that kids have and their curiosity. And there's actually an organization that we partner with quite frequently called Natural Curiosity. And they have a book that's all based on using an inquiry-based method of exploring the natural world, particularly with children. So yeah, it just squares so much with that. Speaking about the outdoors, what is it about the outdoors that sort of lends itself really well to rich talk and these really great conversations with kids? Yeah, so there's a few really key things. And one is just simply your full presence. So the fact that when you are outside, when you're walking or looking at a natural phenomenon, you're not otherwise engaged. So you're not mediated by technology, you're not doing something else, you can both be looking at and talking about the same thing. And that might sound simple, but actually, that can be very profound. Yeah. Uh, because when we're actually just really taking the time to explore something together, um, it's called joint attention, as even with younger children, we know that we can have so much richer conversations and just really surprise ourselves as well as having kids surprise us. So I really think just that simple presence is key. Even more so, though, being outside engages all of the senses in a new way, allows for discussion of things kids might not ever have experienced or might be experiencing in a new way. And even things like seasons and time and geography, all of these really abstract concepts can be really concrete um, when we're seeing the outdoors, whether it's snow coming, whether it's the birds, whether it's different species of reptiles. You can constantly have these discussions that bring in new vocabulary, new understanding of time and changes um, in a way that's really concrete for kids. With that mindfulness piece of using all of your senses, does that allow people to dig deeper into conversations, do you find, when they're outdoors? Yes, I really do think it does, because we're really talking not just about you know, as adults, we think abstractly often. So we think about big ideas or concepts, but oftentimes kids, especially younger kids are not starting there. So they can get there sometimes, but oftentimes it starts with something really concrete, starts with something they smell or they notice and really being able to bring in senses, not just what we see, but really how all of these senses engage and are connected with each other. You know, so what does the fire smell like? What does it look like? And actually starting to build this fuller picture gives kids so much more to talk about and just really enriches their understanding too. So if you're an adult in an advisory role, a teacher, a guardian of some sort, and you are outdoors with a child and you see that they're drawn to something, you know, maybe it's a butterfly landing on some black-eyed Susans, what advice would you give to that adult to engage in that sort of rich conversation to allow the young person to engage more fully? Yes, I think part of it is simply sitting in silence as a start. So actually Mm. taking the time to observe. Oftentimes we want to go in and just talk and kind of fill all of the silence with talk. And so I really do actually encourage educators or parents to really just sit and actually encourage a child to notice. So what are all of the ways we can notice this creature or this situation? What are all the things we can describe? And just actually saying, let's take 30 seconds and try to bring in all of your senses. So notice, what do you smell? What do you see? What does it feel like? 
And then we can talk about each of those things. But I think by starting with that foundation of quietness and observation, it really does allow kids to kind of get past their initial impulse, maybe to just describe what they see or how many things there are and start to bring in more of those sensory experiences. So many people, I think, are just afraid of those silent moments. And I'm sure that's a multifaceted situation. Is it cultural? I mean, I tend to look to digital media and social media and just the ways that our attention is being pulled in so many different directions. And I'm sure that is probably a factor. But is there something innately human that makes us uncomfortable with those silent moments? Or is this a more recent phenomenon? It is definitely increased recently, I would say. I think we are so used to, you know, if there's a moment of silence, we have this often habitual tendency to reach for the phone or reach to recheck email or (laughs) reach for TikTok or whatever it is, because we're so used to having constant input of information and of noise and of thoughts that are not our own. So I think that as we do that, it can create a kind of spiral where the more input we're getting, and you can think about this with kids also, the more input we're expecting. So it can feel really hard and even unnatural to say, or we're going to step away from that and actually not reach for the phone at any moment of silence. So I think it's partly longstanding, but I think it's also these habits that we've developed, especially recently, to take any awkward or potentially uncomfortable moment and reach for a technology to fill it. And that's why I think partly being outdoors can be so helpful, especially if we are mindfully putting some of that away. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the things that we have talked about quite recently in a webinar series and also a podcast is just having those silent moments and just being there, being mindful. And I've heard some people saying that mindfulness is quickly becoming as built into healthcare Mm. as something like, you know, eating well, getting enough exercise, like the things that now we just, or washing your hands, we just take for granted maybe mindfulness and meditation, particularly in in the outdoors, is just something that it's like, yeah, of course you have to do that. Yes, I definitely think it should be. And I think one thing to really think about too is just how we can create mindful experiences with kids that are at their level of concreteness. Because oftentimes I think we sometimes want to translate mindfulness to kids using a lot of the same language and topics and approaches Mm. as we might with adults which I think is obviously a a good impulse, but sometimes it really does go over kids' heads or feel like, oh, this is something so out there, I can't engage with it. So I think rather than doing that, if we can figure out how to translate mindfulness into those really concrete moments and concrete activities, it can be much more accessible for kids, especially younger kids to feel like, oh, this is fun and this is exciting. It doesn't feel like, oh, I just need to, you know, meditate in some much more abstract way yeah and even something like searching for snails underneath leaves can be very meditative it maybe isn't meditation as such but it's a very meditative sort of process and the same thing with like you know looking under logs for salamanders and that kind of thing so i guess in a way it's sort of broadening the scope of what mindfulness and meditation are but bringing those characteristics into it Yes, I I definitely agree. I mean, I think it's so often we can be somewhat inflexible, ironically, about what mindfulness (laughs) is and say, oh, that's not mindfulness because you're not sitting on a cushion or you're not, you know, breathing in essential oils or something like this. But I think, yeah, that can be equally or even more mindful, especially for young kids. And I really do also enjoy the ability to kind of take time to draw with kids about what they're seeing. So actually to bring 
other experiences where they're creating in response to nature. Because I think that can also be a really mindful way of engaging and of just processing some of what they see. That's a big thing for me is sit spots and combining that with sketching, drawing, painting in the outdoors. For me, that's almost like my church in a manner of speaking is that's just where I feel grounded and centered. That's great. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Still no salamanders, but there's a centipede scurrying away and some blue-stained fungus on the underside of this log. The search continues. You mentioned about understanding history, geography, time, and these sorts of broader topics through outdoor-based conversations. And I know also in the book you talk a lot about the back and forth aspect of conversations and the importance of listening. And I, I'm just trying to sort of piece all of this together in you know, how we understand the world and concepts like history and geography and just the functional how-to of those types of conversations. So would you be able to sort of take us into that? I know that's a lot to unpack. Sure. No, definitely. And I, I definitely think that kind of the younger the kid or the younger the person in front of you, oftentimes, not as a hard and fast rule, but I oftentimes think of being starting more concretely. And then you can kind of move to the abstract in terms of those history, time aspects. But I really do start to ask children questions that begin very concretely, but that get at those ideas. So for example, if we were going to look at a forest and we see some trees that are cut down, we might look at the rings and we might start to say, oh, how do we know how old the tree is? Like, let's count the rings. Let's see how old is this tree versus that tree? And I might start to think about, well, what was life like that many years ago? You know, do you think there were forests here? Was there something else here? Were there people here? Like, and trying to imagine back in the past in a back and forth way. So you can start to hear what a child says and offer some of your suggestions or opinions. You know, I don't know if that those people would have been around then or that kind of thing and have that back and forth that feels very grounded in this particular landscape and in these particular trees or in this particular situation. But that is getting to that abstract kind of imagination quality, starting very concrete. Once again, this squares just so well with one of the core tenets of environmental and outdoor education, which is making things very place-based mm -hmm. so that the learning is grounded in your actual community and the actual things around you. And particularly with nature, I think it is easy to fall into the idea that nature exists on the Serengeti or in the Amazon. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I would love to visit those places. I mean, of course I would. I would just be absolutely overjoyed. But that's not to say that the nature right around me here in southern Ontario doesn't have tremendous value and can just surprise us in so many ways. I mean, a lot of people, for example, don't understand or know about like the remarkable diversity of insects or fungi. Exactly. 
And I think there's so many great opportunities for having conversations. Talking about the sort of back and forth aspect, because I know you talk about in the book and you've talked about on other podcasts, the idea that especially educators tend to sort of lecture, even if they're not intending to do that. It's just sort of a tendency that a lot of people have. What are some practical tips for sort of getting out of that, I'm going to talk at you and moving more towards we're going to talk with each other? Yes, definitely. I do think that's especially important in environmental education and nature-based education, because oftentimes we do have these really abstract ideas that we want to get across to kids, but children are exploring often in their own ways and have really interesting ideas and questions that we often don't always hear. And so I think for me, I really start by asking myself the question, what is this child's understanding of this particular landscape? And I can't know that without starting to ask questions and really becoming curious about the child's mind, about how they think about their place in this particular community. So for example, things like, you know, have you ever, even basic, starting basic. So have you ever been here before? What was it like the last time you went? How have things changed since then? What was the season like then? How does the sky look different? What do you think this place will look like um, in five years, in a hundred years? Those kind of questions, I think rather than starting with, oh, I have this big idea I want to present to you, really starting with curiosity and saying, well, I want to understand first how you're processing this landscape. And then oftentimes, if you have an idea that can be woven into a child's conversation, but not necessarily starting there. So I often think about starting with questions rather than starting with answers. Yeah, I mean, talking about a concept like forest succession, you probably don't want to start with this forest is at a young state and it's going to grow into a mature state. How is it going to do that? It's more look at the actual trees and shrubs that we're seeing growing here now and imagine, as you say, you know, what would this look like in 50 years, 100 years? And that sort of leads to the concept of forest succession as opposed to starting with that. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just letting you know that a subscription to Green Teacher also includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles. The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 125 of those and counting. To save you time, everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Between stops, your youngest asks you how centipedes can live on their logs without getting crushed. Pausing for a moment, you ask her if she has any ideas. The term environment has so much weight to it, and some of the connotations aren't necessarily all positive. And that's earned. There are a lot of challenges out there, biodiversity loss, climate change. And I know that you have spoken with children about some of these topics. And it's a slippery slope because we don't want them to feel overly anxious to the point where they just give up. But we also don't want to be untruthful about the severity of some of these topics. David Sobel, who's a really well-known outdoor educator who has written a book about place-based education, he's based in the northeastern U.S., he talks about this idea that we should avoid tragedies before fourth grade. Having said that, 
especially now with information all around us, a lot of kids can't help but learn about something like climate change when they're maybe six years old. So how do we enter those conversations and help them feel somewhat empowered as opposed to just falling into the giving up feeling? Yes, yes. Yes, that's a great question. I think it's such a really important question now Mm -hmm. as we are just having so much information and kids have so much access to information. And I think what's really important to keep in mind is that if we're able to help children process these ideas, we are really supporting them much more to be empowered than if we allow them to need to process it on their own. So for example, if we're just allowing them to hear what they hear and we say, oh, we're not going to talk about that, they're still going to be exposed to it, whether it's from their friends, from teachers, from the media. And so I really think we have a responsibility to talk to them about it early on in a way that helps them navigate these things and feel as if, okay, these are challenges, but you know we can take some optimistic perspective in that people are trying to work on it. Here's some of the ways that people are trying to come up with solutions And that a lot of people are kind of stretching their imaginations as much as possible to try to figure out some solutions to these challenges. So I think if we can present the side of, yes, here are a lot of challenges that we're facing today. And also, here are the ways that people are attempting to help. We can start to bring children into that sense of, okay, you can become a helper too. You can join those people, whether in a small way or a larger way um, later on. And not feel as if, okay, well, this is just a foregone conclusion and I should just give up or be depressed about it. I think there is that fine line, which is always hard to find. But I really do think that children deserve to have us supporting them to process this early on. Yeah. And, you know, the good thing is, despite all of the difficulty and, you know, decades of inaction and obfuscation of the facts by vested interests and all of those really distressing things, the climate solution space is mind-blowing like there's so much incredible stuff happening it's almost hard to keep up with which is a very good problem to have and it's not all really sort of big distant things that young people can't see i mean you look at something like electric vehicles the pace of adoption has just increased so much in recent years and it's something that we'll increasingly see more and more And that's something that you can just point to very directly and say, look, look at this electric vehicle on the road. People are working on this and they're becoming more, you know, by the time you're 16, you know, getting back to this idea of talking about time, by the time you're 16 and at the age to drive, you may very well be driving an electric vehicle or certainly there will be many more of them on the road. For sure. Yeah. And I also think that just helping children see how much creativity is going into these things and helping them be creative is also just really cool because there is so many diverse solutions being proposed and there's so much room for thinking creatively there. So I think that emphasizing that also is really helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like if you don't jump on board, you're going to miss out. Yeah, exactly. Depending on age and development, and we often talk in education about making sure that your approach and or the content that you're addressing is developmentally appropriate. Are there any sort of key guideposts that educators or just anybody needs to be aware of when talking about some of these weightier topics with kids? Like, you know, by this age, maybe avoid this, maybe focus more on this, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, so I definitely think some of the larger, bigger issue topics in terms of, say, what could happen with rising sea levels or this Mm -hmm. type of thing, some of those more disaster type stories that you see on the news as well. I think that type of thing probably should be mostly for older kids who are able to feel like, okay, well, I can see this um, from a more abstract perspective and not feel like I'm immediately going to kind of disaster mode. Because oftentimes, we know really young children have trouble, even, for example, distinguishing characters on television from real people. um, So (laughs) we don't really, you know, there's some kids that if you were to say, oh, there's rising sea levels to a two-year-old, you know, or three-year-old, you know, you don't want children thinking, okay, my house is going to be flooded tomorrow or something like that. So I think those kind of topics are more helpful to introduce, say, around age eight or nine, when kids at least are able to think a bit more abstractly about those things. But at the same time, I wouldn't say to not talk about them, but just to really think about how we can frame it more around the helping side, more around what people are doing, especially with the younger ages. And if we're going to introduce it, maybe start more concretely, say looking at a lake around your house and say, oh, let's look at, has there been a drought recently? What's happening to the water? And starting small there and thinking, okay, we can always go to those bigger, more global issues later on. So I wouldn't say don't talk about it, but I would say to really focus more on the play space and specifics, especially if kids are younger, as well as really emphasizing all the things that are being done to try to um, improve these issues too. Yeah. How does temperament factor into all of this? I know that's another big thing that you touch on in the book. Yeah. So I often think about temperament, not just the temperament of a child, but really the fit between a child's temperament and an adult's temperament. So meaning that, say, if you're a very active person and a child is um, not as active, it can be tempting to think or to feel instinctively as if, oh, there's something wrong with this child or, oh, this child is being lazy or they're very sleepy. It might just be that you two have very different temperaments. The same thing goes for introversion and extroversion. So if you're a very extroverted person and a child, say, is very introverted, it can be tempting to think, oh, why don't they have more friends or why aren't they more social at parties? It might be that they have some kind of social issue, but more likely it's just that they have a different way of engaging with people than you might. And so I think when we're talking about environmental education, that temperament issue is key as well, because we want to see, well, how does a child naturally engage with nature? Is it more that they want to take kind of one-on-one hikes with you, say, or are they happier in a big group of people all chatting and helping to really go with what's working well with them? Maybe you can help stretch them, but emphasizing and celebrating their natural tendencies when they engage with nature, I think is really helpful rather than saying, oh, it has to be this one way, kind of opening ourselves up and saying, oh, maybe we could take this big group hike that I wouldn't necessarily do myself. That type of thing can really help a child, I think, feel comfortable and engage with nature um, more than before. And that just aligns so well with the concept of differentiated instruction, which is more and more prevalent. And, you know, it's kind of like, why did it take so long? But we're, we're getting there. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? 
How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. She pauses for at least a minute, perhaps more, before positing that maybe there are small spaces like tunnels in the soft rotting wood that centipedes can use. In your chapter on openness, you talk about raising global citizens, and that obviously has great relevance to something like climate change because we have one atmosphere that does not have these somewhat arbitrary national borders and you know the air we breathe and the oxygen and the, all the various cycles in the biosphere, the hydrosphere, and so on. So starting more broadly, what characterizes a global citizen? Yeah, so I would say a global citizen is someone who is really open to difference and not only just open to it, but really celebrating it. Somebody who really not only respects the fact that people come in a variety of forms with a variety of traditions, but is actually really engaged and curious and welcoming about those other traditions. So I would say a global citizen is really someone who has an attitude of celebration and curiosity about otherness in whatever form it comes. Someone who's willing to question their own traditions, but also to say, well, this is you know, where I come from. Let's hear about where you come from in a way that doesn't feel as if they're simply tolerating it. They're actually going out there and saying, oh, I want to learn. I want to experience all of these different traditions and people. So I think that's an attitude we can really encourage with conversations. Yeah. And, you know, we, it's like this weird paradox. We're as connected as ever in some ways, yet we hear, especially in certain parts of the world, certainly North America, we hear about polarization and people being afraid of otherness and, I've been reading the book, The Persuaders by Anand Girdadas, and this idea of trying to talk across aisles and sort of bring people into conversations with kids, you know, knowing that this is kind of a context that we live in where, you know, social media is, I think, arguably a big driver of polarization. How can we help foster those conversations with kids where they're curious about otherness and not just sort of fitting into their own silos? Yes, I definitely think that's so important. And it really starts with the tone that we set from the very beginning. And I think if we haven't set the tone we want to set, it's always something we can work on changing as well. But to really start by emphasizing, whether it's a classroom or a family, let's actually go out and name differences. Let's see an an attitude of curiosity. Let's see how everybody is, say, celebrating a holiday or how all of these people are approaching the same landscape or what traditions go on here. 
and doing so in a way that really emphasizes what's different from us actually brings interest and joy into our lives. So it's not something that we need to kind of paper over or just say, oh, yes, that's a side note is that some people don't do it that way. We actually want to understand how, quote unquote, other people do it and realizing that everyone's experience is valid, but we just are all approaching it from our own lens. So I think if we can start by setting that kind of warm and open tone and really as children ask questions about difference, to answer them in a way that doesn't feel shaming or shameful, but actually something that names and celebrates the difference. I think that really goes a long way. And in a context where, say, you you have students in a class and maybe the parents of a certain set of students maybe work in an extractive industry that feels threatened by the energy transition, for example, how would you, again, try to meet a young person where they're at, you know, maybe an eight or nine year old sort of grade three ish? Yes, I think in that case, I mean, I really do emphasize rather than saying, well, let's set up one side versus the other. So mm-hmm. you think this way and I think this way or I want this and you want this really saying, well, we're just going to start to understand how do people come to the ideas that they have to say, for example, how did you come to believe that? Or what about your past or your history has led you to think that? Or for example, so um, say you might think this way because in your experience, you know, this and this has happened or, you know, that your family really needs this because of they need it for an income. This other person might have this other experience in part because of X and Y factors. And when we're getting to something that feels like we don't, you know, agree with that, or we feel like, oh, that's not exactly how I think about it, to really start to model questioning and commenting tactics that are not sort of aggressive or defensive, but that actually are curious and empathetic. So things like, oh, could you tell me more about that? I I don't totally understand that. Or things like, Well, I agree with this part of what you're saying, but this part I don't really agree with. Um, But that's okay. You know, we can actually not agree on that and we can still continue to have this conversation to feel like, oh, we don't have to shut things down or say, oh, you're bad because you think that way, which may be sort of a, a discourse that we're hearing a lot. But to keep the conversation open and to really discuss the fact that we can have these disagreements and continue to talk, I think it's so important. Yeah. And again, getting back to social media, I guess you could almost call it, it's like dunk culture on something like Twitter. And I don't, I personally don't use social media just because the discourse on there, I just find is horrendous in many cases. Not, I don't don't want to be absolute about it, but there's a lot of just nasty things happening on there and everything that you've just described, you don't tend to see much of that on social media yet. A lot of people have a lot of their discourse on social media. So anyways, I don't want to get too much into the social media piece, but regardless of the existence of social media or not, everything you're saying certainly lends itself toward having those productive conversations and the ability to not even necessarily agree to disagree, but just understand and sort of be with your thoughts and another person's thoughts. And it's just so much healthier that way. Yes, I I definitely think too, just as a follow-up to that, thinking about distinguishing a person from what they think or believe. So we can actually say, well, I can still be your friend, um, even if we are fundamentally in disagreement on these issues right now. And so not to say we will always be, but you know, right now this is how it is, but we can still continue to be in relationship with each other. And I think that's something that we often forget and that kids sometimes struggle with, you know, it's like, oh, she's not my friend anymore because 
we don't agree on this thing. So I think kids can often really use our help in that department also. Yeah, and if the adults are modeling that sort of behavior and not shutting people out, then needless to say, that trickles down to kids. Exactly. Yeah, so I think it all starts with modeling for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has really been great. And in respect of your time, I don't want to take too, too much of it. But thank you so much, first of all, for your book, The Art of Talking with Children, which we will put a link to in the show notes. And thank you for sharing your insights and tips on how we can have more productive conversations, particularly in the outdoors. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You promise that you'll test her idea at the next log by taking a careful look at the rotting wood with a hand lens. Everyone agrees that this is a good plan. Crouching low, you point to a nearby log that's covered in moss. What do we think, kids? Should we give it a look? Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. look forward to hearing more of your podcast as well i've been enjoying it yeah yeah we've got a lot of stuff planned always an eclectic mix i mean environmental education you can just touch on just about anything so yeah we have a lot of neat stuff on the way one of the upcoming episodes is teaching about bees and pollinators oh nice that's great that's a really interesting topic for me also so that's, yeah that's for sure okay.